Time frames may vary. Strategies are subject to individual client goals, objectives, and suitability. This approach is not a promise or guarantee that wealth or any financial results can or will be achieved. Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the Family Office Solutions Group Insights Podcast on the UBS Conversations Podcast Channel. Today we are joined by Carrie Shuffman, head of the Women's Strategic Client Segment, who will be moderating a panel with Emily Brunner and Kristen Costa, the two authors of Matriarchs on the Rise, a Family Office Solutions Group white paper. Emily Brunner is a senior wealth strategist on our advanced planning team and serves as a resource for UBS clients on issues related to tax, estate planning, philanthropy, asset protection, business succession, and wealth planning. Kristen Costa is a portfolio strategist on our portfolio advisory group and is responsible for articulating and delivering comprehensive research-driven asset allocation and portfolio strategy advice to financial advisors and their ultra-high net worth clients. So with that, let me now pass it over to Carrie Shuffman, head of the UBS Women's Strategic Clients segment, who will take it from here and moderate today's conversation. Carrie, welcome back. I'll pass it over to you. It's great to be here with everyone today. Um, I'm Carrie Shuffman, and I'm the head of our Women's Strategic Clients segment at UBS, where we are focused on helping women navigate their financial lives and prepare for their financial futures. I'm thrilled to be moderating today's conversation with Emily and Kristen, uh, both of whom will be talking about the Matriarchs on the Rise white paper, as well as key financial and state planning considerations for women. So with so many women both currently in charge of the family wealth or in positions where they will soon be in charge of family wealth, uh, we continue to see that women are frequently then responsible for navigating the family's legacy. So in fact, in 2020, according to BCG, over one-third of U.S. household assets were controlled by women. And by 2030, baby boomers are expected to control up to $30 trillion in wealth, the majority of which is actually expected to be controlled by women. Yet we also know through our UBS Own Your Worth research that 8 out of 10 women in the U.S. will find themselves alone and in a position where they have to independently manage their finances and their family's wealth at some point in their lives. All of these major trends really speak to the importance of the considerations raised in the white paper that Emily and Kristen will discuss today. Research also has shown that there are differences between men's and women's investment decision-making and behaviors, and a more customized approach may serve women better that addresses the unique financial needs and goals that women may have. On today's podcast, Emily and Kristen are going to outline some estate planning strategies to maximize a family's chances of success and also share a distinct approach to investing as women are increasingly overseeing their families' wealth. So with that background for the discussion, uh, I'm going to go ahead and get started. And Emily, I'm going to direct this first question to you, which is that estate planning, as we know, is really an ongoing exercise. And it's important for our female clients to review their family situation to uncover new opportunities to achieve long-held goals. So can you elaborate on some estate planning tools which can help maximize a family's chance of success? Sure, Absolutely. And the first thing to think about is drafting flexible wills and trusts yourself. Matriarchs have a host of tools available to them, but the easiest place to start is their personal estate planning because you can always change your will. You can change it any day of the week. And a lot of times, a matriarch also has powers over trusts for her own benefit. 
So she might be the trustee or have a power of appointment, meaning she can change the default disposition of the assets. When we think about maximizing the family's chance of success, we think about the ability to adapt to changing circumstances. So many trusts are long-term these days, lasting for beneficiaries' lifetimes and beyond. So you really want to create these inflection points for, key, for change. For this purpose, I love powers of appointment, which, as I said, uh, allow someone later on to change where the trust assets might otherwise go. Now, obviously, that's a big power. Someone could use it to subvert the donor's intent. And so we typically see the potential beneficiaries that you could change to limited to other family members, perhaps in-laws, perhaps charity, but within that circle. But even within that subscribed circle, allowing people to play with the trust terms and make decisions down the line about in-trust versus outright really allows them more control over their own financial destiny. Another way of creating flexibility is to make descendants their own trustee. But it's a big decision. It's not right for even all the descendants that you know, let alone some who may not even be born yet. So if the donor can't get comfortable with that, we would think about alternate paths through beneficiary control, such as including a 5% withdrawal power or perhaps a power to remove and replace trustees. And I would consider having at least one of these three, the power of appointment, the 5% power, the remove and replace power, just so that a beneficiary does feel that they've got some control over those assets for their benefit. It's not going to be right for every beneficiary, but it is worth thinking about. And so you talked a little bit about flexible wills and trusts and some of these considerations, but what about adapting and optimizing trusts? Any advice and guidance there? Well, with the trust that was created many years ago, at the time, a lot of things were unknown. And a matriarch now has the benefit of seeing how the trust has worked over time and seeing how the descendants have worked out over time, too. And paralleling that path, trust themselves have become more adopt adaptable so that even a trust that looks very inflexible by its terms might be cited in a state where the state laws have made changes possible, even if the trust agreement itself is not. So the most frequent question that I get is, is it possible to extend the term of a trust? Trust that paid out during the lifetime of the beneficiary used to be very much the default. And now, as I said, we really tend to think of trust as frequently being for the lifetime of the beneficiary. Um, so the beneficiary is coming out to that magic age 3540 where the trust might otherwise come into the beneficiary's estate. It's not sounding like such a good idea. Fortunately, frequently, either under the trust agreement or under the governing state law, it is possible to change that trust to a lifetime trust. And so if that's a pain point, it's absolutely worth talking to the attorney to see if something can be done. It's also important to optimize for a trust's financial performance over time. And so here we're thinking, okay, is the trust located in a high tax state, but it doesn't need to be, we can tweak it and get it out of that state. If it's a grantor trust, does the grantor still want to be paying the taxes or is that more of a burden now? And if it's a grantor trust, can you do some playing with asset location? Because a donor and a grantor trust as to that donor, you can move assets around with no income tax consequences. So because the assets in the donor's estate would be subject to a basis step up at her death, there may be some very appreciated assets that we should really put in the donor's taxable estate and put other assets that don't need so much of a step up in the grantor trust. 
And the key point here is that trusts really aren't set it and forget it. You can always be looking at them and thinking about if we can make them few more closely to the circumstances on the ground. And while UBS doesn't provide tax or legal advice, I know many people are thinking about tax efficiencies around, uh, around their estate plan and around their financial situation. So can you talk a little bit about uh, state income tax efficiency in regard to wills and trusts? Well, some states are very expensive to live in. <laughs> My own home state, New York, has an income tax. We have an estate tax. Uh, and a lot of clients do want to move to these lower tax jurisdictions like Florida. And they ask me what they would need to do to make that happen. And it's definitely possible, but you do have to be willing to put in the work. In New York, if you want to become a New York non-resident, you need to beat both the statutory residence test as well as the domicile test. And the statutory residence test is the one that most people are familiar with. It's the day count test. If you maintain a home in New York and you spend 184 days or more there, then you are a statutory resident, you're a New York taxpayer, that's the end. But look, there's an app so that you can, can count days. It's a very mechanical test and you can surmount it. The other test is whether you are a New York domiciliary. And if you're a New York domiciliary, then the day count is less important. Your domicile is the place that when you leave it, you intend to come back home. It is a feeling in your heart that is expressed through outward acts. And if you're planning solely around day count, then your outward acts might reflect that, might reflect that you really still consider New York your home, and you might well lose a domicile audit. So there are a number of steps that you can take to set yourself up with a favorable fact pattern, but it's really just critical to consult counsel in advance of your leaving New York to set yourself up as best you can. That's really good advice, Emily. Thank you. And, and that was super informative. And just as it's important to be strategic about your estate planning documents and structure, as you just covered, it's also, of course, important to be strategic about your gifting and how you're potentially using your lifetime exemption. So can you elaborate on when it might make sense to gift sooner rather than later? and how to be effective with gifting uh, over the course of your lifetime? We have a federal transfer tax. <laughs> the rate for the gift of the state tax is 40%, but every individual has an exemption from that tax. And right now it's $11.7 million a person so that a married couple can transfer $23.4 million to their descendants before they start paying the federal transfer tax. That is a historically high exemption, and it is scheduled to be cut in half at the end of 2025. If Congress decides to decrease the exemption sooner, then they can do that as well. So using the exemption now can lock in this higher exemption, even if it's decreased later. It is theoretically possible for a decrease to be retroactive. There are other reasons to give early as well if assets and cash flow permit. Number one, it moves the appreciation out of your estate. So if you give an asset worth $100, then you use $100 worth of exemption. And if that asset grows to a million dollars by the time you pass away, all of that growth went to your descendants without being subject to federal transfer tax. An early gift might also avoid a state-level transfer tax. So right now, the only state with a gift tax is Connecticut, but there are other states that do have an estate tax, like New York. 
So if I make a gift in New York and I don't pass away within three years, then it's not includable in my taxable estate. And I've totally skipped the New York level transfer tax on that transfer. But the final and most important reason to give is that you get to see your descendants and other loved ones enjoying the benefit of the gift. And we're blessed these days that life expectancy is so long, but what it means is that a lot of beneficiaries receive their inheritance so late in their lives that it can be less impactful to the course of their lives. And when matriarchs make early gifts to descendants, then they get to see their descendants living in that dream house where they want to raise their family or creating the business that they've always thought of creating. And that's really a pleasure for both the donor and the recipient. Thank you so much, Emily, for that overview. And I want to shift gears a bit and and turn to you, Kristen, and, and focus on the topic of investing. So, Kristen, can you talk about some of the differences that you found and that research has shown between men's and women's investment decision-making and behaviors? Great. Thank you, Carrie. And and thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. There were three primary differences in in investment behavior that really stood out through the research. The first was financial literacy, risk, and then what I'll call action bias for this conversation. In terms of financial literacy, that educational gap really starts pretty early on. From childhood, there's a propensity to discuss investing with little boys and budgeting with girls. And this really goes and is reflective of traditional gender roles. If I think back to even my upbringing, my mother handled a lot of the budgeting. She handled the bills and balancing the checkbook. And my father, who was an investment professional by job, would handle the investing. So it starts pretty early on, and it doesn't necessarily narrow. But there's also a second layer to that, where women actually underestimate their financial knowledge and overestimate what it actually takes to become involved in the capital market. The second is risk. You'll find a lot of blanket statements, if you do a quick Google search, that women are more risk-averse than men. And I don't think that really tells the whole story. Women are comfortable taking risks, but going back to that financial literacy component, if women are less confident are confident in their investing acumen, they tend to sit in cash and short-term alternatives in much higher quantities. And this really skews the portfolios much more conservatively. Women also tend to take more calculated fact-based risk. So this aligns very closely with trying to achieve their goals and objectives, which again, lends itself very nicely to the UBS wealth way. And the last is that men tend to exhibit more of an action bias, meaning the tendency to do something over nothing. And we've all heard the research in regards to asset allocation being the primary driver of your returns over the long term. And women tend to trade less, which has actually been beneficial to the returns, whereas men have traded a little bit more in their accounts and it's actually detracted from the returns. What really seems to resonate is this customized approach. Understanding a client's goals and objectives will give the advisor this ability to make sure that the risks are taking really corresponds to that long-term goal. Thank you, Kristen. And and as you just mentioned, women really do need a customized approach to managing their wealth that fits within their risk tolerance, their time horizon, as well as sort of what are their concerns and what are their goals for the future for themselves and and their loved ones. So UBS Wealthway does offer matriarchs a framework to help guide decisions and tailor a portfolio aligned with their financial and personal goals now and into the future. So can you share more about the Wealthway framework for our listeners? Yeah, so by now I'm, I'm sure everyone is pretty familiar with the Wealthway concept. And as I alluded to before, I think this is a great way of really being able to connect with matriarchs, and especially in conversations with multi-generational wealth. 
A liquidity portfolio is a way to maintain your life cycle, lifestyle, the longevity to improve your life, and legacy is to improve the lives of others. But it, it goes beyond that. The liquidity portfolio is imperative to having and setting forth into motion this long-term plan. And when we talk about women disproportionately holding out the cash and short-term instruments, this helps quantify what they actually need to have on hand. And 2020, March of 2020, was a perfect example of why this liquidity bucket is so important. When we think about what happened in volatility, if you needed money to fund your lifestyle and you're pulling from your longevity portfolio at the bottom, you actually are detrimental to your long-term wealth. So this at least provides that buffer during periods of market volatility. The longevity portfolio is really the investment implementation of that long-term financial plan. It's a great opportunity to understand what's important to the client and what they want to spend the rest of their life doing, whether it's traveling, starting businesses, making sure they're fully funded for their retirement. And the research shows that women care less about beating a benchmark. And actually, what they care most about is achieving their goals. So it's important to align the two. When we talk about the differences in financial literacy between men and women, this is a great opportunity to understand what the client owns and why they own it and making sure that that is very much articulated to them. Right now, people are talking a lot about the democratization of the financial markets. And in the past, jargon has really been viewed as a barrier to entry. So getting away from that financial language that we're all accustomed to using and really making sure that the client has a deep understanding of what they own and how that aligns with the goals that they're trying to achieve. I was listening to a podcast research, uh, recently, and I think it articulated it well. When most people discuss what they want out of life, they talk about they want to be happy and healthy, and they want to be able to provide for their family and friends. And financial education is really fundamental to that. So when we think about how important it is that the client understands what they own and are able to see how this is going to benefit them in the long term, the more successful that relationship typically is. Legacy is the last portfolio that is incredibly important to talk about. It's overlooked because it's just pretty squarely in between two of uh, everyone's favorite topics, money and death. So when we talk about legacy, it's really important to recognize that sometimes clients want to have the next generation in the meetings and sometimes they don't, but matriarchs have been a little bit more amenable to having those that next generation of wealth in the conversation. When we think about investing the legacy, that could be anything from college accounts to donor advised funds or foundations. And it's a great way to get the next generation involved in some of these investing accounts a little bit earlier on. They tend to be a little bit more aggressive and focused on growth. And history has shown us that the detriment of these gender stereotypes and how they do influence that gender wealth gap. So when we talk about how we can change this moving forward, a lot of it does have to do with the education. And the earlier we can get the next generation involved in some of these conversations regarding investing, the more beneficial it'll be in the long term, hopefully with that gender wealth gap. I couldn't agree with you more, Kristen. And I, I think exactly what you just said before, which around understanding your financial picture and your current and future financial situation, really it's critical to achieving one's overall life goals and, and financial well-being and overall well-being we know are, are frankly inextricably linked. So I, I really agree with everything that you just said around understanding what you have, how you're invested for the future and, and your plan for achieving those goals. And, and on the topic of Wealthway, our Own Your Worth research actually also found that eight out of 10 women believe that the Wealthway framework is a good financial strategy. 
And on the topic of Wealthway, Kristen, you mentioned legacy uh, as one of the key considerations within the Wealthway framework. And matriarchs, as, we, as we've discussed and as the white paper touches upon, are likely to be the stewards of their family's legacy. So, Emily, can you talk about how philanthropy in particular can be an effective tool to shape a family's legacy for generations to come? Having her family understand her philanthropy lets her family know the matriarch herself. And really, there's nothing more important than that. But almost as important, it can also help avoid an abrupt break in the family philanthropy. In the absence of communication, when a matriarch passes away, there's a real danger that the funds that were going to her favorite causes just disappear, total clip. If she talks to her descendants and involves them, maybe she can persuade them. Maybe she can say, look at how this hospital has impacted our community for so many years. Please continue to support them in my memory. Or at least she can talk to them about gliding down their support so that the nonprofit has the opportunity to replace those lost funds. It's also true that a matriarch is not the only one with something to teach her descendants, and her family may well introduce her to new causes that she adopts as her own or new ways of doing philanthropy. There are so many different ways to engage with organizations and to measure success. Thinking about the foundation assets as a tool in and of themselves, for example, by investing in environmental social governance funds, moving away from pure grants and thinking about these relatively new program-related investments, a much broader category of philanthropic options to achieve social goods, including loans to and investments in certain organizations. The key here is that when you intermix the generations, then everyone's experiences and perspectives are enriched. Thank you, Emily, and, and thank you all for tuning in today. Uh, thank you, Emily and Kristen, for such a dynamic discussion on these important financial considerations for women and, and for doing a deep dive on the really terrific Matriarchs on the Rise white paper that your teams jointly uh, published. So uh, we'll wrap up here. And, and just in closing, I also want to mention that UBS has a wide range of content available to you, our listeners, across a variety of topics focused on women's financial well-being and, and financial and uh, legacy considerations. So our Women's Strategic Client segment also has a website where you can find a ton of supporting information based on today's discussion, all focused on our Own Your Worth research and geared towards helping women achieve financial well-being. To learn more, visit UBS.com forward slash women. That's UBS.com slash women. Or please reach out to your private wealth advisor who can share a copy of Matriarchs on the Rise and continue the discussion. Timeframes may vary. Strategies are subject to individual client goals, objectives, and suitability. This approach is not a promise or guarantee that wealth or any financial results can or will be achieved. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.